reading from Psalm 9, 7 through 11. I encourage you to turn there as we read. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the people with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Number 655. I'm so glad you're here tonight, especially if you're our guest. We welcome you and we appreciate you being with us tonight. If you have a Bible, you might open it up to John chapter 4 as we continue in our series on the Gospel of John, John chapter 4. If you're new to Bible study, then John is the fourth book in the New Testament, fairly easy to find, and uh, we'll hope that you will uh, open your Bible to that. Also, many of the verses will be on our screen. I don't know about you, but I'm finding it more and more difficult to trust in people out there or in systems out there or in society. Do you ever find it difficult to find someone to trust? It seems like there are just no trustworthy people, systems, uh, organizations out there. It kind of seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, now as parents, we have to watch out because the toys our kids play with have lead in them, right? That's a big scare for that. You know, not long ago, they told us that bottled water actually came out of a tap. <laughs> you know, we, we trust them that this is mountain, spring, water, pure, but you know, it comes out of a tap. I heard the other day, maybe you saw this on the news, they make these backpacks now for children that are bulletproof. Have you seen these? Bulletproof backpacks to send your kids off to school with, just in case something happens. Because you never know. We don't know who to trust. And so we become skeptical. You know, next thing you know, you're going to try to tell me that the BCS is a good system for deciding the national champion, right? We just can't trust anything that's out there. And sometimes we have that mentality. And it only takes a few times to get burned or to get hurt, get disappointed, to realize, you know what, I'm not letting that happen to me again. And so that's where our skepticism comes from. It comes from being hurt. It comes from being disappointed. And it also comes from society. Because we live in a world that is very skeptical. And so once that happens, we begin to kind of second think everything. And we begin to question everything. And sometimes doubt everything. And we say, can I really trust the government, for instance? Can I really trust the stock market? Can I really trust the media? Can I really trust our school systems? Can I really trust society? And we begin to question everything. And sometimes it's easy to feel like, like we're Charlie Brown... You know, backing up, and Lucy is holding the football, and we're getting ready to kick it, but we just don't know if she's not going to pull it away. And sometimes we live our lives that way, skeptical of everything and everyone. And I wonder, does that skepticism ever, ever bleed over into our faith? Do we ever say, God, I don't know if I can trust in you? Do we ever ask the question, God, are you really trustworthy? Are you worthy of my trust? Can God be taken at His Word? And maybe we've been hurt or disappointed. Maybe a prayer has gone unanswered. And so we step back and say, I don't know. God, to me, you're you're holding the football and I'm about to kick it, but it feels a lot like you're going to pull it away again. 
But if you think about this, if you think about this question, it is such a critical question. Because that question, the answer to that question, is at the, at the central point of, of our faith, of everything. If we cannot trust God, then we cannot be sure of anything. And so I ask you tonight, do you really trust God? You know, there's lots of people in the Bible, some who trusted God and some who didn't trust God. And tonight we're going to look at a story of a man who trusted God with something very important to him. The life of his child. And so if you look at John chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse 43. After two days, he left for Galilee, talking about Jesus here, obviously. He left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that the prophets had no honor in their own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And so already we see what's going on here. We have the Galileans here who have this kind of superficial faith. This kind of what we would call today a consumer-based faith. They want to see something. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 23, they were there at the Passover. It says that they saw Jesus do some miracles, some miraculous signs, and so they they believed in Him. And so the Galileans have this this kind of consumer-based, superficial faith. Now remember, let's back up a little bit. Remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman? Her testimony to the other Samaritans. And many believed because of what she said. And what did they believe? Remember what they said about Jesus? That He is the Savior of the world. So the Samaritans had received Christ for who He was. The Savior of the world. But the Galileans, Jesus' own people, His hometown people, received Christ for what He could do. For what He could do. The miracles in Jerusalem. After all, they knew him. They were familiar with him, at least by reputation. And so, to them, he had to do something spectacular to get their attention. Why do you follow Jesus? When you think about why you come to church, when you think about why you try to live the Christian life, why do you do that? What is your motivation? Is it simply because you get something out of it? Is it for what you receive out of the relationship with Christ? And if so, I can promise you the first sign of suffering, the first indication of an unanswered prayer, you're going to bail on Him. Because when your faith is based solely on what you receive, then you're practicing a self-centered, shallow, short-term faith. So why do you follow Jesus? Maybe some of you follow Jesus because it's expected of you. You grew up in the church. People are watching, family, friends. It's just expected of you. And so you go through the motions because that's what everybody expects. In fact, that's what you expect of yourself. But inside of you, you're waiting. You're waiting for God to do something spectacular. You're waiting for Him to give you a sign. You're waiting for something that you can't deny is from God. So that it can push you over the edge and that you can have an authentic faith. This kind of faith is misguided. It's apathetic. And it will not last. Why do you follow Jesus? Could it be that it's just because of who He is? For who He is. The Son of God. The Word that became flesh. The Savior of the world, as the Samaritan said. Back in the story, verse 46. Once more He visited Cana in Galilee, where He had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. 
When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee at Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And so John sets the scene here. He says, Jesus comes back to Cana where he turned water into wine, the first sign. And this royal official comes up to him. This is likely an official of Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee during this time. Incidentally, the son of Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus was born. And this man is desperate. He has this urgent need, and his urgent need compels him to Jesus. He was desperate. Any parent who has watched their child uh, be hurt or sick or possibly even die, you know this kind of desperation. There's nothing, nothing worse than watching your child suffer as a parent. And that's what this man was experiencing. He was desperate. And so in his desperation, maybe he heard about Jesus. Maybe he knew that other people were talking. And he seeks Jesus out because maybe this man, maybe the one who does these signs, these miraculous signs, maybe he can do something to help my son. And so this royal official decides to overcome all kinds of obstacles, physical obstacles, religious obstacles, social obstacles, physical obstacles to find Jesus. And notice what he does here. The original language has this idea of of asking over and over. The NIV says that he begged Jesus. This man was desperate. Do something for my son. Save my son. Some of us know what it's like to, to pray over and over for the same thing. To beg God, God, heal me or heal this person or take this away or bring this. God, please, please, I beg you. Some of us know what that's like. That's exactly what this man is doing. He's begging Jesus. Jesus, my son is sick. He's more than sick. He's about to die. Please do something. Notice what Jesus says. He uses this as an opportunity to teach to address the onlookers who were there. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. It's important to point out there that the you is plural. And so I don't, you know, you see that and you think, my goodness, Jesus, you're kind of harsh with him. He's just asking out of desperation for you to help his son. But I think it's important, again, to look at that word you. It's plural. He's talking to the people. He's not just focused on this man and his simple request. He's telling them, you just want, us, you want me to do a miracle? You want me to do a sign? You won't believe unless I do something. Remember the Samaritans? Believe because he's the Savior of the world. But you are believing. You're receiving me simply out of what I can do. And it's almost like this circus atmosphere around Jesus. This sideshow. Come on, Jesus, do another miracle. Do something great. You know, we want to see something. Do another magic trick. And you, just kind of, you can just see him kind of shake his head and say, Why? Why do you just want me to do things? You just want a miracle. You won't believe unless you have signs. You know, we've said over the past few weeks about this this series. In fact, it's called The Signs of Life. We've said that John put these signs together. He wrote about these signs so that we would believe and have life. And so why here is Jesus getting on to people who are requesting or asking for a sign? Well, let's keep in mind what a sign really is. Remember, signs are significant. In other words, they're bigger than just the act itself. There is substance behind the show. They point to something greater. 
And I believe Jesus was looking for people not only to believe in him because of his ability to do a miracle, but to believe in him for who he was, for who he is, not simply for what he could do for them. And I believe he desires the same thing from us, that we trust him. The miracles are simply signs pointing to something greater, the power that's at work within him from the Father, of who he is. The signs are significant because they point to a significant Savior. And he wants us to realize that. You know, so often we ask God for a sign. We bargain with God. We try to make deals with God. We want God to intervene into the humanity that's here, the fallen world. And we make deals. We say, God, if you would just do fill in the blank, then I'll do so-and-so, right? God, if you'll just do something. But, you know, I think what he wants from us is not to always ask for something, but for us simply to trust him for who he is. Not to make deals, not to make bargains, but simply to trust him. Our faith is not in what he does for us. Our faith is in him, who he is and what he's already done. Back in our story, <laughs> the official here, he's, he's not wanting a sermon. He doesn't want to apply spiritual truth here. He has one mission. His child is dying. So notice what he says in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, Jesus, do something. Please, I'm begging you. Now, Capernaum was some 20 miles away. And when he says come down, it was actually geographically lower. It was by the Sea of Galilee. So he's saying, Jesus, let's leave here now. We may have time. Let's go as fast as we can so that you can do something for my son. And it reminds me of Mary and Martha. Remember in John chapter 11, later on, when their brother Lazarus is dead. And they're disappointed because Jesus wasn't there to do something. And just like them, this, this official thinks that, that Jesus is limited by time and space. That we can comprehend and understand his limitations. That he has to be here. That he has to be in the proximity to do something about a situation. And so he says, please come and do something. And notice what Jesus says in verse 50. He simply says, go. Your son will live. That's it. Go. Your son will live. And and I think it's important to realize he's not saying... You know, go ahead, go back home, you know, give him some aspirin, give him some medicine, keep an eye on him, or, or you know, I'm, I'm sure he'll get better, or take him to the doctor. He's saying, he is well. He's alive, right now. Now, put yourself in the shoes of this, of this royal official for a minute. How would you respond to that? You've come to Jesus, maybe you've heard about his miracles, you've heard about his power, and you're begging with him to do something for your son who's dying. And he simply says to you, you can go now. He's, he's okay. How would you respond? You know, probably many of us, I know I would be, oh, wait a second, Jesus. <laughs> can you give me some confirmation? Can we, you know, you have miracle insurance here? I need, I need to know that this is true. You know? Or we might just think he's blowing us off, right? Are, Jesus, are you just big-timing me, or are you really serious here? You know how it is when someone asks you, hey, will you give, or will you be at this meeting, and you, just, you say yes to kind of, you know, get rid of them, and... <laughs> You don't know if you're really going to go or not. Maybe sometimes. Hopefully we don't do that. But sometimes that happens. You know, maybe that's the response here. This guy's thinking, wait a second. You, are you just saying that? Are you, really, are you really sure? But notice this guy's response. Look at the second part of verse 50. The man took Jesus 
at his word and departed. He believed Jesus. He believed him. When Jesus said, hey, your son's okay, that's all he needed to hear. That's all he needed to hear. He took him at his word. In other words, Jesus, if you say it, it's good enough for me. I don't need to question. I don't need to ask. I don't need to push you any farther. It's a done deal. Boy, you talk about faith. You talk about assurance. You talk about acceptance. The man simply believed Jesus and took him at his word. His desperation had turned to assurance. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. Now it's interesting when you look at this, to speculate for a moment, why did he not go straight home? It's obvious he spent the night, right? He was only some 20 miles away. The miracle evidently took place around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the seventh hour. So why didn't this man just go back home that day to to check on his son? And it's interesting because people have speculated on why he would choose to spend the night there. And some have said, well, maybe he had to let his horse rest. You know, he'd ridden him hard all day. You know, he was in a hurry. He He was desperate. And so he rode the horse really hard and he needed to let the horse rest. Maybe so. Others have said, you know, he's in town. And so we went ahead and took care of business while he was in town. You know, it's like when you come to the big city, you have to go to Sam's, right, before you go back home. And maybe that's what he was doing. He was doing business. Uh, others have su- suggested that maybe he stayed to listen to Jesus. That maybe he was captivated by this man. And he wanted to hear what he had to say. He wanted to, to find out who he was. After all, we know is from the end of the verse there that he and his household believed And so maybe that was grounded in some of the things that he heard as he stayed there that night. Others have suggested that he simply stayed because he had no doubt his son was healed. If he took Jesus at his word, he was convinced his son was healed. And so why hurry home? We don't know why he stayed, but evidently he stayed overnight. But when he returned home, his servants intercepted him. And I love this story because you can just feel the anticipation as you read about these servants. They rush out to find him. Your child is alive, they say. Now for parents who have had sick children or parents who have children who have died, those four words are the best words in the world. They say to this man who was once so desperate, your child is alive. And then they had this, this kind of chill bump moment. You know what I'm talking about. Some of those moments when, when you realize that there's something going on here. There's something that, is, that I can't explain. There's something that is of the divine, of the spiritual. That is beyond me and my reasoning and my logic. They have one of those moments when they realize the exact moment when this boy was healed. That was exactly when Jesus said that he was okay that he was, in fact, healed. Unmistakable proof of who Jesus was. Now, do you think this father had a testimony? Do you think he had a story to tell? 
Do you think that when he went to work, when he went to the store, when he was among total strangers, don't you know that he told them the story about his son? What a powerful testimony this man had about Jesus Christ for what he had done for him, for who Jesus was, not just for what he had done. I wonder if we're so compelled to share who Jesus is with the people around us. But tonight the question really is about our faith. Are you willing to take God at His Word? Are you willing to trust Jesus? Is His Word good enough for you? Can you overcome the skepticism of the world long enough to really trust Him? You know, some of us, we want to. (laughs) We want to take Jesus at His Word. We want to fully trust in Him. But we get mixed up on what He has promised us. You see, if if I say, yes, I take Jesus at His Word, and I think that His Word is that He's going to provide for me physical blessings, healthy life, material blessings, success, an easy life, it's easy to take God at His Word, right? But is that what God has promised us? When we take God, when we take Jesus at His Word, is that what what we're banking into? Is that what we're believing in? Is that what we're trusting in? The idea that, that he's promised us an easy life or a comfortable life or a life of good health or a long life? Not at all. So what has he promised us? If we're supposed to take him at his word, what is his word? What has he promised us? Well, he's promised us his peace. Do you remember what Paul says in Philippians 4? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God. And I like this part, which transcends all understanding. The peace that, that I can't really get my mind, mind around. The peace that I really can't understand. The peace that transcends understanding. That's the peace that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. God has promised us peace. We live in a world that needs peace. A world that is filled with conflict and struggles and strife. And God says, here's what I offer you. Peace. But he also offers us his presence. What we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Remember as he sends out his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And notice what he says. Surely, certainly, unmistakably, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. God says, I'll be with you. As you go out into this world, as you face the challenges and the struggles, as you answer the call that I have on your life, please know, God says, I'll be with you. And he gives us his spirit. In his presence. So he gives us peace. He gives us his presence. And he also has promised us power. I love the verse in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. God did not give us a spirit of timidity. But a spirit of power. And of love. And of self-discipline. That's what God has given you. That's what he's promised you. The power to sustain you through life. The power to overcome this world. Whatever this world throws at you, 
Whatever challenges, whatever struggles, whatever causes you to be skeptical and doubt, even God sometimes, God says, I give you the power to overcome that. I give you my presence to guide you, to comfort you. And I give you my peace so that you know it's all going to be okay. Earlier this week, some of the staff got to, uh, got to have lunch with Jack Lowry. And we, uh, we had a, you know, it was one of those conversations that, that you don't just have every day. It was one of those very meaningful, deep conversations. Some of you may not know that tomorrow Jack will find out some news. Um, some news on his health. Doctors are saying that he may have leukemia. And he will find out possibly tomorrow. And I'm not sure. I don't think Jack and Joanne, they actually went to get his mom. And he said he might not be here tonight. Um, but he, I told him I was going to talk about him. And he said that that was fine. Um, but in that lunch conversation, you know, we talked about a lot of different things. But one of the things he said is, you know, I don't know if I have leukemia or not. He said, but boy, this past week or so, it's changed my life. It's changed my perspective on my life. It's changed my perspective on God. It's changed my perspective on prayer. He said, I've never prayed this much before. But then he said this. He said, you know, whether I do have leukemia or something bad, or I don't, I'm prepared to deal with it with God's help. You see, that's taking God at His word. So many of us, when we face hard times, when we face challenges and difficulties, we ask the question, why God? Why would you do this? Why do I face this injustice? This doesn't make sense. I don't want to go through this. And what He wants from us is just to trust Him. To take Him at His word. To believe that He is who He says He is. I told Jack tonight that I wanted to have a special prayer for him. And so I want us to, to pray for Jack and for his family. But I also want us to pray for, for others that you may know. We love Jack. And Jack is one of my friends. And he's probably one of yours. But, but as I look out here, I know there are others who are dealing with struggles and challenges. Maybe with health and sickness. Maybe with job. Maybe with relationships. Maybe with family. I don't know. But you know. And so let's pause for a moment. And as we pray for Jack, I want you to also to pray for those people you know, maybe even yourself, who needs to know that God is real, that God is trustworthy, that he can be taken at his word. Let's bow together. God, we pause in this moment, on this day, to first of all praise you, to thank you, to acknowledge who you are, God, you are a wonderful, merciful, holy God. And Father, so many times we try to make you something you're not. We try to expect from you something you haven't promised. God, we know that you have promised us your peace, your presence among us, and your power to sustain us. And God, that's enough. That's more than enough. And we thank you for that, and we praise you for that. But God, we also come to you tonight asking you to intervene. To intervene in this world, especially in the life of our friend and brother, Jack Lowry. God, we know that tomorrow is a day that he has been anticipating for the last few days. And we pray, we pray for good news. 
God, we know that, uh, that that's a possibility, and we thank you for that possibility. And that's our prayer. That's what we want. We know that's what he wants, what his family wants. And so, God, we just, as this man did with Jesus, we beg you. God, I know that there are others. There are others on our hearts and our minds who are facing difficult challenges, who are in the midst of, of pain and suffering, of obstacles, of relationship problems, and I pray for them as well. I pray for healing and hope. I pray for restoration and reconciliation. But God, in all of these requests, for all of these prayers, God, we want you to know that we're willing and ready to face whatever comes, good or bad, easy or difficult. We're ready because we know that you're with us. And that our lives, that our faith is not about this world and this life, but really about the next. And so, Father, help us to live this life with our eyes on the next life. God, let that guide us. Let that hope bring us joy and sustain us. And, Father, we pray that you would make yourself known. But, God, ultimately, we trust you for who you are a holy, merciful God who sent your Son to die for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, Jesus rebuked the people in our, in our story tonight for, uh, for wanting signs and wonders, for wanting miracles, for wanting this, this sideshow, for wanting him to, to operate and do things on their terms, for wanting them to see the spectacular. So often we do the same thing. The odd thing is, I'm not sure even if God did that, you know, if God put that sign in our front yard that said, I'm real, or if he did the answer to that prayer that we want so desperately, I'm not sure even if he did that, if we would truly believe. You know, we make our deals, we make our bargains, and we say, God, if, then I'll, but I wonder if we really would. Do you remember in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus is a poor beggar at this rich man's gate, just wanting the crumbs off his table, just going through the garbage at night to get something to eat. And as the story goes, they die. The poor beggar, Lazarus, goes to be with Abraham by Abraham's side. The rich man goes into Hades or hell. He's in torment there, suffering there. And he begs for just a drop of water. Abraham says, it's impossible. And so this man turns his attention to those who are still alive. He said, okay, well then please, send Lazarus, send that beggar to my family. You know, send him back from the grave to them to warn them so that they won't end up here. And notice what Abraham says in verse 30. No, Father Abraham. Or actually, Abraham says, he says, listen, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word already. But now, pick it up in the verse. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see what he's saying there? Abraham says, even if I send a corpse up from the grave... 
with a Bible in one hand and a sign in the other that says turn or burn, it will not make a difference. Because their eyes are closed. There's never enough, there's never enough proof where there is no faith. We've said that before. If I have closed my heart to God, then there is nothing, nothing I can see that will change that. So I wonder, as we go through life asking for God for signs and miracles, if He did those things, would we, would we believe? He wants us to believe in who He is. Are you waiting for confirmation from God on your own terms, in your own way? Are you bargaining and dealing with God? Stop looking for a sign and start believing in who He is. The sign is here in His Word and in the testimony of God's people. Believe in who God is and what He's already done. You know, even when prayers go unanswered, when miracles seem to go unseen, when death and and sickness and disappointment are all around us, make no mistake about it, God is trustworthy. God can be trusted. You can take Him at His word. He has proven Himself time and time again. If you don't hear anything else tonight, please hear that. But the thing is, I can say that until I'm blue in the face and it won't make any difference until you believe it. Do you believe He is who He said He is? Do you believe that God is trustworthy? Or are you waiting for Him to to jump through a hoop, to put a sign in your yard, to answer the deal or the bargain you've made with Him? Believe Him. Because He's the Savior of the world. As the Samaritans believed in Jesus. Maybe tonight you need to commit your life to Him. Maybe tonight you have decided that you want to be a Christian. We can help you do that. Or maybe you, a few minutes ago, when we were talking about struggles and challenges, you can relate to that. And maybe you need support and help and encouragement to know that God is trustworthy. And that no matter what happens in life, good or bad, that God's peace and presence and His power is there for you. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.